Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. This year is Heritage Radio's 10th anniversary. Please support Heritage Radio Network. Go to www.heritageradionetwork.org donate and become a member today. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, copperheads. Copper cookware is amazing. It's traditionally made from pure elements you can find on the periodic table. Copper makes the pan, symbol CU. Iron handles, symbol FE. It's lined with tin, symbol SN. That's it, just three ingredients. For hundreds of years, copper was the metallic cookware in the world, and it still has no equal. No matter how much marketing modern chemicals get, there's still nothing that compares to the efficiency, utility, beauty, and longevity of copper cookware. Regarded by professional chefs as the best, it performs equally well in home kitchens and looks great doing it. One of the best things about copper is that it can be renewed. So finding a family heirloom tucked away or picking up a piece at a garage sale is a great way to acquire it. Lucky for us, there are also a few diehard folks still making it, and in fact expanding, creating a revolution in small manufacturing of this nearly lost craft. My guest today is Mac Kohler, founder of Brooklyn Copper Cookware. We sat down a few weeks back to catch up. Thank you for sitting down with me. My um, pleasure. Thank you for you the invitation. Would you introduce yourself and tell me, you know, when you meet somebody, uh, you know, at a party and yeah. they say, what do you do? Yeah. How, what do you answer? What's your answer? I say I'm Mac Kohler. I'm a pot dealer. Nice. And the first legitimate one possibly in the country, not merely in New York State. <laughs> and that, you know, obviously I put it in, a, put it in my business cards, in fact. And it nice. gets the conversation started. Sure. Whether or not they have any interest in cooking cookware or otherwise, the uh, the hook is, it's already getting a little old, obviously. I've been doing it for seven years now. Um, not since the beginning, but uh, that this is done, that anybody has settled down, myself, Jim, Corey down at Blanc Creatives, anybody else has settled down to work in pure metal and think that thinks that's important raises on the other side of the conversation a more interesting issue to most people and that is what they're using now to cook yeah and that is frequently an element in the endless stream of disposable crap that is made to maybe last three or four years and be chucked and replaced yeah and that is to most people a more interesting 
point of reference and a desideratum than what I make. Sure. And, and what you make, which is sitting in front of me here, is true handcrafted tin-lined copper cookware yeah. that is meant to really last much longer than our yeah. living human forms will be. It has no design earth. horizon. It, uh, it will last literally centuries. And yeah. there are pieces in service that are a thousand years old. Sure. And they can be restored, renewed, refreshed, and returned to service at a fraction of the cost of what we sell for, obviously. Yeah. But um, no ma unless it's been stressed to the point of disturbing the crystalline structure, like cracked, um, if it can, it can even be reshaped. It can be annealed, reshaped, retrued, huh. rerounded, and reset, retinned, and back it goes. Wow. And our retinning operation, we, we have a piece in right now that's, too, anybody's best guess, about over 200 years old. It's pre-Civil War. Um, just based on the joinery and the filleting in it and uh, other elements of its its constitution that is going to emerge better than new at the far end of the process right? and go right back to work, probably. Yeah, no, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's what my wife Taylor in the, in the housewares industry, uh, you know, when, when the Brooklyn Kitchen was still in its heavy retail phase, mm -hmm. you know, we used to call that landfill fodder. Yeah, yeah. And we would walk around the trade shows, and she would point at things and say, "Well, that's landfill fodder, and that's landfill fodder, and that's landfill fodder." And anything, anything that you know, I mean, there are there are some things, right, that are, you know, still elemental, like a wooden spoon, that eventually mm -hmm. will mm -hmm. wear out. It's a right. soft product right. that will eventually wear out. But it um, will do so, and and do no harm in doing so. Yes. I mean, it goes Absolutely. into a landfill that turns yep. into sprouting bed for mushrooms or whatever. Yep. Um, whereas yeah. polytetrafluoroethylene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never goes anywhere other than into our cell structure. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you are uh, Brooklyn Copper Cookware. Yeah, which <laughs> which sort of I guess uh, you know carries on the mantle of what at one time was kind of alongside cast iron the or even before cast iron yeah. the cookware. I mean that's yeah. what copper is what cookware was made of. Yeah, uh, copper clay mm -hmm. iron. It was right. the metallic cookware, yeah. really, until the much higher temperatures needed for smelting copper, not copper, iron right. properly, and the techniques for forming it and like hammer welding it and so forth evolved over the course of many, many centuries. The Iron Age, of course, obviously, was well after the Copper Age, yeah. but the techniques as they could be applied to copper, what constituted metal smithing from in the, in the span between the beginning of the Copper Age about... 7,500 to 8,000 years ago to the beginning of the Iron Age, those techniques really didn't apply to mm -hmm. iron. Iron is, in its pure form, is a much more crystalline, uh, a much more granular crystalline structure, so it's much more fragile. Sure. It breaks easily, it hardens very quickly, it quenches very awkwardly, it's inclined to warpage, it has to be poured very carefully to get any sort of alignment in the structure so they can be worked into sheet form and made into something useful. Yeah. And it took some doing for the longest of times. And though we, there's lots of evidence of copper or iron. I'm so used to saying the word copper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> iron, <laughs> iron cookware <laughs> that, you know, emerges from some of the, the oldest burial sites. Um, Stonehenge has evidence of, of copper dust. Iron vessels. <laughs> um, no evidence of copper vessels, interestingly, that I know huh. of, in England until much later in history. 
Now, is that, I mean, is that just due to the availability of the material mm. from a mining standpoint? Very likely. And copper found its way into England and Northern Europe, um, originating in the vicinity of the Dardanelles, the Bosphorus, Bulgaria, Romania, Turkey, that part of the world. And those folks, Moorish at the time, mm. um, had the evolved skills to work copper and iron kind of developed independently throughout the more northern reaches of Europe and copper came rather late to the game. Mm -hmm. um, it was first, as I gather, it was first cherished, Sarah has a great deal of knowledge on this, it was first cherished in northern Europe as a reflective material, it would be highly polished. Sure. And you could just grab a wad of like peat moss and shine it up and see yourself, which ontologically speaking was like a revolution yeah prior to that it was still water we needed to get any semblance of ourselves from without right now we had something we could carry around and look at and copper was the first metal with which we could do that mm. and that may have persuaded northern europeans of its virtues before settling into more prosaic uses such as cookware sure because sure. iron was more lumpen and uninteresting that way and yeah um Nobody cared if it got black or lost its shine. It never had any shine to begin right. with. Um, and so, I mean, the, the earliest copper vessels, I'm assuming, were unlined. They were, yeah. yeah. And, but now, I mean, and, and I mean, as things moved, progressed forward, um, you know, they became lined. And, you know, now there are different techniques. You can buy them lined with stainless yeah, steel. Like this um, Like the MOBL that I have on the table here. Um, you know, you can buy them lined with silver, um, mm -hmm. you know, which some people do. Mm -hmm. And then yours are lined with tin. Yeah. Um, why tin? Well, tin is, is one, the traditional metal. It is the first metal to line copper cookware. Sure. But more importantly, um, there are two reasons underlying my, my interest. One, there's a lot of copper, tin line copper cookware out there. And very few people left in North America who can service it oh, like a literal handful I mean. exactly <laughs> literally you know, it's, it's yeah Count less than two handfuls yeah exactly i think we got it. we're up to eight now um so there was a restoration market not merely a market but like a need people sure. had useful cookware probably the best cookware they would ever have in their possession that they weren't using precisely because they knew something's wrong with the inside and that's a that's an easily solved problem in terms of the cost of setting all that up. I mean, it's a tinning forge, which is essentially a, you know, like a turkey fryer type burner. Sure. Because um, tin has a relatively low melting. 425 Fahrenheit. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, super workable. And it's a very simple metal, actually. It's, it's, uh, it's And I would point out for people listening that mm -hmm. it is an element. It is. Mm -hmm. As copper is As is copper as well. and as is iron. So the pan that you now make really is made from just elements three elements in the periodic table yeah it's uh, that's why we call it pure metal and kind of talk to people not merely about you know the glories of tin line copper but the biological the existential the almost spiritual dimension of adopting pure metal to put between what you're going to put in your body and the energy source you're going to transform that on and that is not uniformly appealing that's an argument or a case that's lost on a lot of people but it is like super compelling to i'd say the majority of people who are interested in in buying from us or working with us with their old stuff yeah and it's a thought that i'd like to think is gain, gaining a little bit more currency because with the environment um, politically and also extensionally we find ourselves in 
everybody is forced to consider what the footprint is, what their footprint is, and yeah. what the footprint upon them is. And it doesn't take long to realize cooking on a petrochemical derivative is probably not your jam. What are the alternatives? Carbon steel is an easy get-in. Yep. For 50 bucks, you can get a pan that will outlive you comfortably. Yeah. Cast iron, different applications yep. you know, in the same range of cooking operations. Yep. When you get to things like stewing and slow cooking and aqueous cooking that, and that, those sorts of operations, the list shortens and these become the metals you want to favor. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, you know, while they financially may be out of the reach of some people, right, um, the fact is, and I appreciate that you point out that there are those materials available, which are cheaper. They're cheaper to work with, they're cheaper to make, they're cheaper to mine still, probably easier to recycle. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure what the, what the opportunity is for recycling copper into your pans versus using raw, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that you know we live in a time where money and what people spend on things and where you place your value, even, even you know, we live in a world where having a tiny computer in your pocket is almost necessary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at least in America, yeah. in cities in this moment. Yeah. And so if people are able to and they're figuring out a way to put that in their pocket, mm. they can most likely figure out a way to put this on their stove, I would think. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, it's out. It's still out of reach for many people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we all have to have things to aspire to. So Right, right. And and in, in, in the value dimension, in monetary terms, copper is eye-wateringly expensive, right? Like, yeah. you're going to get 10 nonstick pans for the price of our lowest price piece. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting to feel my way into the, the, the kind of conversations that folks who can't afford it yet are interested in having now. Not because they are looking to be persuaded for future reference, like I'm going to reach my peak earnings and this is what I'm going to get. That's not the conversation they're interested in having. They're interested in, in working through a different conception of value that has nothing to do with the money that it costs, mm. but what it brings to... They're, they're interested, for example, in we're thinking about having kids. We're in our late 20s, we're thinking about having kids, and I started collecting the cast iron a couple of years ago, and I just feel better about using that. And they'll get all up into, now we're, you know, now we get a lot of iron in our diet, and, you know, iron's this super high oxidant, and though our blood needs it to carry oxygen everywhere else in the body, the oxygen is also... Implicated in, in cellular oxidation, so they're you know they're they're at that level of considering what it is they're doing hmm. three times a day every day of their lives. Yeah, and the value for them is how do I smooth this this curve? How do I not think about my cookware? Right. Oh, I got it. Let's talk to these guys over here. I'm sure Jim and and everybody else is having kind of the same conversations yeah. but just yesterday I spent a better part of an hour with somebody who came in inherited two pieces from her grandmother they were absolutely destroyed they'd been cooked on naked copper the whole thing covered in carbonization and totally serviceable they're going to clean up beautifully she's going to be amazed but she's she's a paper maker and a craftsperson and everything we're talking about was absolutely in her wheelhouse. Sure. And she was 20, 29, 30, somewhere in that range. Yeah. Absolutely. She can't afford to buy it new, yep. but now she's got it. Right. It's going to change everything. 
that's the well, and that I think is also very interesting. You know, there is not a single large manufacturer of essentially throwaway cookware that is also in the business of servicing yeah. cookware that people already have, right? Yeah. That's just not yeah. the same thing. It's and so you present something very interesting, which is, I mean, you know, the pieces that I have out on the table here, mm-hmm. I mean, all of them except for the Moviel that we were already speaking about earlier are all pieces that I picked up in different places. Some mm-hmm. from flea markets, some from garage sales, <laughs> some from estate sales. Yeah. That large hammered stock pot came from Smithtown, Long Island, not too far from where you grew up. Uh, right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't made there, but I bought yeah. it out of a house there at some yeah. point. Amazing shape, you know, and and that you know, and that is something that you know it it they are out there, right? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the thing, Mm -hmm. and they are out there for less than they cost new, Um, and you can certainly find them and then have them have them serviced. So let's let's talk about the let's talk about the pans that you're making. Mm -hmm. So your evolution with making pans Mm -hmm. started started with you, dude. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to take it back before that. I, as I understand it, the yeah. first inkling was actually in Portugal. Well, actually, no. The first inkling was uh, predated. Portugal is where the light kind of came on with respect to, you know, eternity. Got it. And it was in. Uh, Got it. It was in Sintra, uh, over a small town on the call, coast called Cascais. There's this great, sprawling palace with a kitchen that's probably seven times the size of my apartment. Um, with a collection of copper cookware, all perfectly maintained, tin, polished, mm. hanging there. 200 pieces, I would hazard to guess, conservatively, um, and probably more that are not out on display. And I was talking with a docent uh, in English about it, and she was, uh, she was where she was because she was very well informed about this stuff. And she said, that piece over there is about 250 years old, that one's over 300 years old. That one was just used in a movie shoot. It's 150 years old. It's probably huh. due for retinning. We have somebody on that staff comes in that does, does no, somebody it. on wow. staff that maintains the stuff and keeps it polished and, and which, so on. which I guess historically would have been true of a large exactly of a large kitchen. Yeah. I mean, you know, thinking I mean Downton Abbey being a perfect example mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. it being in kind of the modern consciousness. Yeah. And the tinsmith would the itinerant tinsmith would basically sure. go from manor to manor to manor and do the entire set in situ. And carry his forge on his back, yeah. um, or sometimes do it over an open fire. I, mm. I crossed Romania, and in the vicinity of um, a, a small town called Yash, I picked up um, a piece by the roadside. And as best as I could figure out, owing to the you know the lack of my lack of Romanian or Roma, which is the, the people I was dealing with were itinerant coppersmiths, mostly Roma gypsies, as mm. we might otherwise call yeah. them, uncharitably. Right. Um, but they were sitting by the roadside tinning copper over an open fire. And I got a few pictures of it, and I ended up buying a piece, and I brought that home. Um, so I had Romanian, I had Spanish, I had French, obviously, I had Belgian, I had German, I had Australian, I bought a piece from Laura in Tasmania. Um, had all this copper, brought home the Portuguese stuff, added a, a cataplana. Are you familiar with, with cataplanas? No. They're, they're a shellfish cooker. Okay. It actually looks like a big clam, basically. Ah. And it's, it's hammered, soft... Uh, annealed, I would probably hazard to guess, but it's supposed to, as it expands, form a very tight seal against it. Oh, interesting. So as it heats, it seals yeah. itself. Yeah, and it's huh. super uniform Neat. Um, as a shellfish cooker and get very nice results out of it. And I added that to my collection coming home from Portugal, having learned that the pieces I was admiring in this museum were centuries old. And having been duly impressed with, wow, copper pretty much lasts forever. Yeah, you know, you just keep renewing it, right? 
add this Portuguese stuff to the collection, and I'm spanning, you know, all of these countries represented. I didn't have a single American-made piece of copper cookware, which struck me as just weird. I mean, Paul Revere worked in copper, right? right? Yeah. And Revere Copper lives to this day. Yeah. Jeff and Hammersmith and probably Jim still on the East yeah. Coast um, gets copper sheet. C11,000 electrolytic tough pitch copper from Revere. They're the big supplier on yeah. the East Coast. Um, and shortly thereafter, I was walking around with a friend looking for apartments. And we were standing in front of your Lorimer location. Right downstairs from where we're sitting when, right now. Yeah. <laughs> looking through the window. <laughs> And hanging on the back wall was a large saute. And given, you know, all of the stuff that I had, I felt like I can recognize a maker from a distance and sure. I could not make out brass handle and all of that. And you were you were selling it for a king's ransom. I was impressed by that too. And the gal I talked to said, Oh yeah, a guy over in Bushwick. He, uh, you know, we refer retinning to him and he makes the occasional piece and we sell them and people seem to love the fact that they're made in Brooklyn. And uh, that's when I got in touch with you. Yep. She gave me your sure. number, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you gave me Jeff's number, yep. and the rest, as they say. And that, and that was the birth of the company, right? That was the birth of the company. That was the, the, the birth of the company, interestingly. We just had our 10th anniversary yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you. Amazing. Um, and that was the day I DBA'd it when, a few days earlier, Jeff accepted my first purchase order for 380-on pieces. And at the time, that was what I, you know, I had no idea what it cost, what the cost of goods sold would be. I had no idea. I had right. no business plan. I had nothing. Yeah. I just thought, well, somebody's got to do this. Somebody's going to do this. Right. And as it turns out, somebody, like, right down the road from me owns the tooling to the Waldo line, yeah. which went out of business in the late 70s. They have it all. And they're still using it to make this, that, and the other, and retin and, and fix restaurant stuff. And Jeff said, make it interesting, and I guess what I, whatever number I pulled out was interesting enough, and um, we got started. And uh, that, as they say, uh, well, that was a very mixed bag from the get-go, unfortunately, and with all due respect to, to Jeff's generosity in saying yes, the tooling was so old and right. so decrepit yeah. and was falling apart literally falling apart as we were spinning it up to make what we thought we were going to make. Oh, well, that's not going to work. Well, let's make a different size or yeah, whatever. Sure. It, was, it was cracking and crumbling. And yep. um, we had a hell of a time actually getting the initial battery to cuisine started, which is why the pictures on the first website were mostly Photoshopped. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to do a two-quart au gratin, well, when that tool fell apart, suddenly we had to do a three-quart. So I just basically stretched the picture out until I <laughs> got to three quarts. Total, total cheat. Uh, very funny. Again, you know, I was proceeding from absolutely no experience manufacturing or organizing sure. business or you know, selling retail or doing anything online. My yeah. background was nothing like that. Um, but Jeff said yes, and so let's go. And we got about halfway into building the first inventory. And Florence Fabricant got word of this happening. And she got in touch with me and said, we would like to cover this because it's really interesting. Like world-class cookware coming out of Brooklyn. Copper is not done anywhere else in the country. And at that time, that, right. Jim was not making it. Nobody was making anything yeah. in copper. And uh, I said, I had the, the small presence of mind at the time to say, 
it's you know we're about a month and a half from Christmas Florence could we wait because we don't even have any finished pieces this comes out it's probably going to result in some sales I haven't even tested the shopping cart yet or right, right. trying to incorporate Zen card into my crappy visual page HTML site um, so she said okay but you know at some point my editor is going to say we we run it or we skip it yeah and all right whatever that is we'll take our chances we got through the holidays. I think we sold, I don't know, 10 pieces or something like that. It wasn't even posted, just word of mouth. And then we actually got launched in February. Florence calls back, the site is up. We do the interview, we do the photos, the whole thing. And uh, and then we wait. I don't get to find out when it's gonna be run. Right, right, they don't tell you. They Which just is, come and they do the thing. And it's the, cool, right? Uh, we get a heads up like, I don't know, 12 hours before something like right. that. I'm in Vermont. And Florence calls, Florence's fact checker calls and says, I'm trying to find something out on the website and you should know your website's down. I hadn't put a CAPTCHA, you know, amateur. I hadn't put a CAPTCHA on the contact page. But even back then, that was not, I feel like that was... I got hacked. Oh, no. <laughs> somebody was, my provider, Mac Iowa, was, you know, they figured out, oh, my God, somebody's sending 5 million emails from this, this <laughs> contact page. We've got to shut you down because it's shared server and other people were affected by this. So I called my web person. We spent until like 2 o'clock in the morning getting this sorted out, getting a caption installed, rebuilding the site, relaunching it. getting So it that it'll be ready for the, when the Times article came out. We didn't know. All, yeah. I'd, all right. I heard from Scott. the fact hey, you may want to check this. Not because you're about to get signaled, but <laughs> just because. Because I want to know. i got to check this fact or yeah. whatever. Well, um, by 11 a.m. that morning, we were sold out of everything we intended to make. And I was like an idiot. I, I just kept taking orders for stuff mm. we hadn't even planned for yet. Right. Just we sold everything, and I just kept kept sure. shop open. Right. Yeah. So we were back ordered instantaneously, and uh, we stayed back ordered until um, Hurricane Sandy. And wow, Hurricane Sandy flooded the basement at Hammersmith. Yeah. Yeah. You may have heard about all of this. Yeah. Um, Tending forges were wrecked. The gas pipe with the Con Ed would not serve the building because gas pipes were broken in the front wall, and the building owner wasn't going to spend any money on a hundred whatever hundred eleven year old building. Oh yeah, and I mean, and that that place was. I mean, it, it was it was amazing. I mean, I remember the first yeah. time I ever walked in there, yeah. and I was <laughs> blown away by the fact that the stuff that was in there was still there. Yeah, and that there were giant hammer forges and that there was yeah. a, that there was tinning forges and yeah. that there were spinning machines and lathes and forms on hydraulic press yeah i mean all the stuff that was i mean i had spent some time around machine shops as a kid and mm -hmm. i just like walked in there and it was like stepping back in time <laughs> and beyond yeah. right i mean yeah. the thing it really i remember was kind of beautiful it was i mean and one of the the most striking things to me about setting foot in that place for the first time was the paths that were worn in the floor yeah so yeah. like the, unchanged, right? Yeah. So those machines had been there exactly since the dawn of time. Yep. Right. And that people had taken the same paths, and it's a dirty, you know, mm -hmm. machining metal is a dirty yeah. job. Yeah. And so the grit and the oil and the dirt and the grime and the dust and everything had settled around the pathways. It was yeah. really fascinating. The gallons like, of machine oil that must have been sunk into those 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 wood floors, yeah. those planks, those yeah. things. Oh, those kind of trees don't even grow anymore. Right. It's, and the place was a death trap. Too. Oh, yes. Yeah. It, uh, it was so tumbled down. It had been grandfathered for like 40 years by the fire department. No fire regulation in through anywhere in that building. No oh, extinguishing, yeah. no nothing. Yep. 
and it was a disaster waiting to happen. And I knew that. I mean, I knew this can't. We, we got to do something different eventually once we get sure. our feet under. Our right, right, right. But once we get through the back yeah. orders, once we get through the, the yeah, yeah. It's cool that there's somewhere in Brooklyn I can say we're Brooklyn making yeah. all of that. Um, but the, the the long story short, we were still we were we were like eight or nine weeks back ordered when Sandy hit, and I had turned the site I turned the shopping cart on and off variably um, over the months to just kind of slow it down a little bit. And I don't wish to suggest that we were like selling like crazy. It was a good steady trickle. And it was a good proof of concept. Like, sure. wow, okay, so there's a market. I haven't even advertised right. or right. done People anything. People want this People, thing yeah. that we're trying to make happen. Yeah, exactly. And um, you and I had a conversation uh, about carrying it at Brooklyn Kitchen. Yep. And at the time, I was like, I'd love to, to, to go through this and figure it out with you, but we can't actually service the demand we see yeah. right now. So let's circle back. And everything blew up in the meantime. I was left, in the end when Hammersmith and I parted ways, I was left with some hundred plus orders to refund, um, amounting to something in the range of about $10,000 worth of, of money I had to come up with to give back, yeah. and um, a bunch of unfinished copper cookware. So, and you know, I'd, I'd gone through all of my own capital. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about HOST, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Niporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, JJ Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. We are offering a special early bird ticket price until November 30th, so don't miss out. 
I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks. My wife and I, we sold our co-op and I went off, I took a few pans out to Lima, Ohio, where there was this guy working a dip tinning line who knew how to manage the metal. Um, and so I took him a few blanks to, to work on and he called back six days later and utterly surprised me in so doing. I thought it was going to take weeks. I mean, I'd be sidebarred. Uh, and he'd get to it when he could. Called back six days later, sent pictures, said, how's this looking? And it was the equivalent, if not better, than the best quality French tinning I'd ever seen. Hmm. And I'd, you know... And what was the business that he was in? I mean... It's Metal Coating Company. Okay. And they they are one of two companies left in the country that do um, large tool dip tinning. So for... Hmm. Commercial kitchenware, for example, Hobart gives them a lot of business. Sure, because big giant stand mixers. Stand mixer bowls are all tinned. The yep. ones, yep, they're all tinned, and more importantly, the hooks, the whisks, all those sorts oh, of things. Oh, sure. And those hooks, I think the last the, the last number I saw for any one of those hooks, they're like a thirty five hundred dollar chunk of metal that's exquisitely well balanced, cast, and of you know particular kind of steel that will just keep it going for a long time. But of course, steel reacts with Pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, so it has to be dipped in a non-reactive metal. It has to conveniently tin. Yep. But the steel itself has to be treated ahead of being dipped, so an intermetallic compound forms and the tin stays on the on the steel for some sufficient period of time. Yeah. I think the wear in continuous use is something like two to three years yeah. on one of these. Each one of them weighs I don't know, 75, 80 pounds, something stupid, and they do. They've got. 400 gallons of molten tin hmm. liquid all the time wow. and the appropriate <laughs> overhead and yeah. drainage and quenching and so forth huh. and they've been doing this since the 30s they're total experts at it yeah and they do other sorts of, of bits and bobs but mostly it's commercial culinary equipment hogart's a big uh, big vendor for them or a big contract for them yeah and i came in teeny tiny right and uh <laughs> and dan would back me up on this this works twice. Actually, it worked two and a half times. Um, I was already a failure, right? The company was down. <laughs> the concept had been sort of proven, but you know, to the tune of what? Nothing, as far as anybody out in the Midwest was concerned. I was sure. not bringing money to the table. I was no promise of anything right. worth changing anything in order to get involved with. Right. Um, but I did note that uh, you know, as they're looking skeptically, saying so. Does anybody else make copper cookware? And I said, well, yeah, the, the French make quite a lot of it, actually, and they export a fair amount of it to us, mostly stainless steel line, the tin line stuff they keep for themselves. Um, the French, really? They're big makers? Of, oh, they're really our only competition. The French are the only competition. We're in. And then I mm. trotted that, and then I had my tinning guy, and the tinning guy was like the most exotic of the fabrication slash metalworking skills that I would need, as, especially as hand skills go, as we mentioned, yeah. practically doesn't exist. So then I went down to Dayton on the recommendation of, you know, bizarrely circuitous route that the word came to me I should stop and talk to these guys, um, soft metal spinners. And again, I'm proceeding as a non-metallurgist, non-engineer, know-nothing, desperate 
and these guys spun aluminum. If, you, uh, if you've ever looked behind the counter at a McDonald's, and I don't expect either one of us spent a lot of time in, in McDonald's. Not many, many food. years, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> behind the counter, there are these, these heat lamps that, you know, oh, over the chutes, and they sure. keep your whatever it is, food, yeah. um, warm, right? <laughs> right. Those heat lamps are spun aluminum, and they, they, get, they suffer from heat stress like any metal would because they're always on 24-7, yeah. and so they have to be replaced. Huh. Um, I gather, by law, in most states, they have to be replaced um, at regular intervals. Because they crack and they... Yeah, yeah. and they get you know, grunged up and what have sure. you, and they fatigue, yeah. and they don't contain... They end up not containing heat. Now, aluminum is very radiant anyway, yep. so I'm sure a lot of the legislation that accompanies the, the mandate is very illiterately form, but suffice to say, it's a good business for whatever company has to replace those. Yeah. And that's Ohio Metal Fabricating. Huh. They do a ton of it, you know, 10,000 at a pop. Wow. Just to satisfy, like, the New York metropolitan region, yeah. Southern California, or whatever. <laughs> for Wild. just Mickey D's, Arby's, Burger King, you name it. Yeah. Um, there's a huge quantity of these. And they're completely recyclable, mercifully. So they're the old ones right. are collected and melted down and reused. Made it, yeah. Um, but they spin these all day long, so they've got the talent to work soft metal, which is non-trivial. Um, and they were up totally unfamiliar with copper. But again, French are the only competition. That's cool. Now, this is this is the part of the country where anger at the French for various and sundry reasons was sure. quite palpable. Yeah. And so, but yeah. also, I think an opportunity to continue a manufacturing tradition. I mean, mm. you know, I mean, look, looking at. Any number of places, Hammersmith included, right, yep. that have now gone by the wayside essentially as American manufacturing yeah. and talking about the, you know, I mean, we're not talking about materials that rust yet, but but right, the right. rust belt, right? right I mean, right. you know, yeah. I just was reading an article the other day about, you know, the former Bethlehem Steel and how, you know, what's on that site now is a casino and uh, an enormous warehouse where like everything for every Walmart comes out of right, the right. ports in New Jersey and then goes there. Uh, and those are the kinds of jobs that, that we're offering throughout the Midwest. Yeah. These days. I mean, when Bethlehem Steel closed, there were 30,000 people right. were out of work in one day. Right, right. Ugh. Yeah, our, our teeny tiny little effort involves 16 people yeah. and 32 hands all together. But, to, but still, that's, you know. Yeah. It's the no, start. Anyway, but yeah, I, so, I, so I guess all that is to say I can understand why they might be interested in yeah. working with you. Right? Yeah. And different well, they, opportunity. They were interested in the in the you know the the value side from a monetary perspective. Like is is this worth learning how to do? Is spinning copper something that we want to get up into? Yeah. And the short answer was, geez, it's you know, we don't do it, but maybe we can recommend somebody else. And then the idea that you know this this is a good that is going to go from your hands into the hands of people who are going to use it to sustain their lives. Yeah. This is a basic, literally elemental tool in practically every household. Not every household has copper, obviously, yeah. but in principle, this is what we're making. And because you guys can do it by hand, because the tinning guy can do it by hand, and we got to find the iron guy that is yet to come. Um, it's going to be special. It's going to be the very top of the market. And it is going to be customer facing, and suddenly it was like, "Wow, we've never done anything customer facing ever sure. in our lives." <laughs> That's interesting. Can we do that? I mean, it would be nice to get a little bit of positive attention for American manufacturing. We've been basically toiling in, in obscurity for 
a generation. Yeah. Nobody knows we exist. Right. Right. We're out here. We're doing good work. Yeah. We're making tiny little sub-assemblies for, that you'll never see in the wing of the Boeing aircraft. But it's solid. It's good. It's our best work. And it's keeping you alive. But you don't know it's there. Right. <laughs> this, you will know, is there. And yeah. it's made by people in the Midwest who are performing skills that have not been refined or passed on. And they're basically bringing them back to life, bringing them back into a production context, and people really do appreciate that fact. Now, the guys at Ohio Metal Fab are no more individually known than they ever were, yeah. but every time they make something, they know that it's going to Dan for tinning, and then it's going to somebody who is just going to go, this is amazing. Well, and, and the fact that you at Brooklyn Copper can connect the person who is purchasing this and I like on your site that you refer to yourself as a business to owner yeah <laughs> not a business to consumer right right business no. but that Can't you can connect yeah that you can you can tell the owner whose hands yeah did that yeah, did yeah. those parts of their manufacturing yeah, yeah. Um, and that's you know that to me is also a huge piece of it mm -hmm. um, especially because you are creating something that then does become an heirloom mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that gets passed down yeah from one person's yeah. hands to another person's hands yeah and it comes into the world with a story that's that would be worth telling, even if it, the thing was not going to land in your hands. Right. It would be worth hearing. I think it's worth hearing. Yeah. Because these are people who had, honestly, the business case where they're taking me on was zero. Right. Nil. <laughs> sure. This is not a good idea. This is going to be a huge squandering of our time. The guy's failed once already. He knows nothing about working metal. He's this ponytailed Brooklyn <laughs> leftist Clinton lover, and he doesn't know anything about us or what we're doing, right? And that is scrupulously true. That was a completely accurate read on everything I represented, right? But what was there was the extension or the resurrection of a tradition that goes back to the founding moments of the Republic. And as you know, precious as that sounds, that's important to a lot of people. A lot of yeah. people who are largely overlooked at, overlooked and scoffed at, because they think any of that is important. Yeah. Right. So that was where they're picking up the thread of something that was once really important to everyone in this country, and now is possibly less so. They're pissed off about that, but now they can do something about it. Yeah. And I'm not telling them that this is what this all means, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're figuring it out. Of course. As, as, and it, they're becoming progressively more intrigued. Now, they, and you said you wanted to talk about the handles. Yeah, we'll get so to that's them. The, the, the third piece. Everybody's stretching out and learning how to do the things. Now that they know what the de design criteria and the, the you know, the, the, the desideratum is at the bottom of what we're doing, everybody's stretching out and doing it the best they possibly can. I learned about from the two guys who do most of this t the spinning on the large pieces, they took it upon themselves to look into what's called bell tempering. And this is a way, like this piece, this piece is planished, this stockpot is planished. Planishing is an ages old method of keeping very soft metal like copper from sagging under its own weight. At mm. this height, this pot would just basically begin to flatten out. Sure. Again. 500 years ago, when planishing was super common, um, people already knew that this is going to last centuries. Right. This is going to last generations. We better prepare it 
to do so. And so we're going to take what's a, a fairly loose and chaotic crystalline structure and we're going to put little isolated indentations and force those crystals into closer alignment. Uh, and they're going to support... So that's the reason that pan is hammered. That's called work hardening. Interesting. That, that metal, in each one of these indentations, that metal is harder than the crystalline lattice uh, out of which it was originally made. Huh. And that's why it's supporting its own weight. This is done decoratively now. I mean, most of every piece of yeah. copper is spun because lasers are a hell of a lot more efficient yep. at doing it. But planishing was like the the first indication that we had that people knew that this metal was due to last yeah. centuries. We, it's going to sag under its own weight. Right. Who, who the hell figured that out? Right. And then how to solve for that problem? Yeah. They just did. Or they figured out informing it that, and again, Sarah's looked into this, and I have some of my information from her, but informing it, peening it, is a kind of an easy way to get a flat piece to to not form folds or pleats sure. in its deformation yep. over, like a fence post. The equivalent yeah. of you know a, a smithing shoe yep. is basically a fence post. It's a blunt, hard surface. That you you're basically work it over. Metal over yeah. Well, why doesn't that metal fold onto itself and form pleats as it's working its way over? People began to understand that very early on and also could work the metal taller, longer, and make bigger pieces the more finely they planished it. Hmm. And that, in a modern, I mean, this is a short pan we're looking yep. at here, but our stock pot is 14 quarts. It's, it's a little taller than the 13 liter that um, is the common French stopping point yep. for tin line stuff. Yeah. Um, and that pot would definitely sag under its own weight if we didn't work hard in it, which is called bell tempering. You're lis literally listening to the metal as it's being spun. And our guys are figuring out what is the, the musical interval. Oh, so is, it's called bell tempering because it is a bell tone. It is a tone, exactly. Ah, the metal neat. is singing. And it reaches a pitch just shy of seizing, reaching its terminal hardness, which when all the crystals in the metal align in a perfect parallel pattern, the next bit of friction or energy applied to it is basically going to take adjacent crystals and break them apart. Do that. Yeah. Right? And that's an expensive slab of scrap at right. that point. You put all the labor into it and yep. you know, yep. improve value. Um, and then it's going to go back for be recycled. So the trick is get it formed over the lathe mandrel as it's spinning at a rate that that respects the terminal grain growth and terminal grain merging of the metal itself, but also hardens it sufficiently that it's going to... You can flop it up very quickly, especially thin copper. You mm. flop that over a lathe mandrel in a matter of a few minutes of a tall pot. But you can't harden the thin stuff as easily as you can harden the thick stuff. And that just means listening to it and going back and forth over it until you reach the pitch that's just shy of it huh. becoming fragile. Oh, fascinating. And you stop. And because the copper itself is so efficient, it as soon as you stop the friction, it discharges all the energy. Entropy just pfft, energy leaves the system, huh. and that pan is perfectly hardened. It's toughened, actually. The, the technical metallurgical term is toughened. And then we have valves in the mandrels because it's so tightly fit to that mandrel that allow us to pull oh. it off without getting a vacuum in the, <laughs> the foot of the, the pan. Wow. Yeah. And these guys, they learn that on their own. Two guys in particular. They just thought, right, copper. We have this problem with aluminum. If we make it too big, it kind of deforms too easily. This stuff is really thick. It's going to take years and years, decades, to 
begin to sag, but it will. So right. what do we do? Huh. And they looked into it and figured it out. That is fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about copper cookware care. So, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about people bringing in pieces for refurbishment. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you know, I guess, first question is, how do you know when it's time to have your pan retinned? Right. The most obvious telling sign is I left it on the fire too long, book cooked out, and now it's like blistered and blackened and everything else. Um, even then, however, unless the tin in molten state has been disturbed, it will probably settle back out. Highly oxidized, but it'll probably settle back out with a little bump and blister and maybe a little stippling here and yeah, there. Yeah, I've had that happen. Totally serviceable pen. You can continue right on using it. When the tin it'll goes... Just, it'll just destroy your wooden spoons. Because, it will, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's much rougher it's surface. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and what's happened there is, you know, you've gotten a, a few crystals basically pyramiding. Um this this is obviously freshly wiped tin, yep. and it's shiny because of some of the, the things we've been talking about. It's shiny because in molten form, it settles the, the crystalline structure is chaotic, right? So it settles out at all these crazy angles. That creates a super high refractory index, and light coming into it bounces straight back ah. out. That's the same thing is true of the exterior. Yep, polishing is literally scoring, micro scoring metal so that the light will reflect exactly and that creates this kind of prismatic effect that gives you the shine when um tin starts to condition and copper starts to condition when they're again elements that they they will transform and continue to transform as long as you use them put them on heat take them off let them cool with food in them without what have you they will condition and the tin is settling out and losing this kind of prismatic surface effect and smoothing into a tougher, smoother, more durable, and more thermally efficient surface. Huh. But no longer shiny. No longer shiny. It turns gray. So this one is probably like that. Or this, which is a, this is a copper lid that is completely tinned all over. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Made in New Mm -hmm. York City. That Uh, is showing more signs of oxidation than conditioning. Covers are mm -hmm. interesting because they get kind of, they get contact conditioned by usually nothing more than Hundred degrees centigrade, two hundred twelve degrees Fahrenheit, water vapor. Sure, they're not getting a flame, thirty two hundred flame, thirty two hundred degree flame underneath, yeah. and you know, working temperatures inside, which can be three sure. three hundred fifty degrees. Yeah. Um, so the the tin on an, the inside of a cover will tend to condition far less or much more slowly. Mm. What we see on this one is mostly oxidation. Okay, that's the kind of graying effect. Yep. Um, Conditioned tin is much darker. It's almost uh, like a gunmetal color. Maybe so. This one, right, one. this right yeah. here. Got it. That's well. That's heavily conditioned tin. This is a very gently and respectfully used. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, I. I from looking at it, I would say you probably use this on a fairly low flame, and you've always got a pretty a generous quantity of oil in it. Yes. And oil is a terrific heat sink. It is yeah. super fast heat transfer. Yeah. So it's taking energy up through the copper, in through the tin, and it's discharging it into the food yeah. very quickly. And this is precisely how we'll never be able to train people to use, <laughs> talk to people <laughs> lucidly enough to use a tin line fry pan, which is why we don't make one. Interesting. We see more of this kind of pan in retinning. Sure. For servicing than yeah. any other, right. like twice as many. Right. Saute pans are number two. Tinning and frying is great. I frankly think there's nothing better. And I've got carbon steel and cast iron for weeks, and 
for doing something like um, fish for Sol Meunier, for example, uh, it's nothing like tin. I've never tried it on silver, and I'm eager to, but um, tin does beautiful work. It is, however, because folks are so used to cranking the heat up for yeah. frying operations, right. it's much more likely to get So, there. So your pieces are really focused on things that are used more for braising and yeah. for, mm-hmm. you know, you said you make a stock pot, yeah. um, large volume. Yeah. You know. Sautéing, too, yep, which is sure. a lower temperature operation, yep. keeping things moving and so forth. Yeah. Sauter to jump. Um, yep. So this ends up being, I mean, this is basically our sauté configuration right here, just with two handles two yeah. handles as a rondo. Yep. Um, and it works absolutely beautifully for that. And it was beautifully as it works for frying, I'm disinclined to do it for frying, yeah. simply because we're not used to it. Right. I do like that you point out on your site, you have a quote from Craig Claiborne, who mm-hmm. wrote in 1975 in the Times about the quality oh of copper yeah. um, and, and wrote about how there was there really is nothing better, was, wasn't yeah. then and still is not. Mm. Um, I really like that you took the time to do the math on what was then a $185 stock pot, right. probably similar to the one sitting here right, that I right. have, yeah. um, you know, but that in today's dollars, that's $1,200 approximately. About, yeah. Yeah. And that yours is actually still cheaper than that. So adjusting for inflation for the time being. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. who knows what, what the, what's going to happen with the dollar and its value right. in the next year or so? But right. you know, so but I, I feel like you know, looking at it in that regard, mm-hmm. you know, in inflation-adjusted terms, we're still very definitely in the traditional market. Yeah, exactly. Range yeah. with heavier goods. Now, this new pan that's sitting here, of course, is beautiful and shiny. We've mm. been talking about that. Mm. Uh, my old pans that I use often are not beautiful and shiny. Because uh, with, with two children, I, the, I, don't, I don't do a lot of scrubbing uh, right, of right. the exterior of my pan because yeah. I'm more concerned with the interior. Yeah. Um, does that matter in the usability of the Absolutely pan? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. As we were talking before about the shine, the shine is, is actually represents some superficial level crystalline chaos. Well, I really appreciate you sitting down to Thank talk with me. People should check out uh, BrooklynCopperCookware.com, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, check yep. out what's... what's And so now, mm. as far as supply, yeah. um, if someone goes on the site now and wants to order something for the holidays, is that... We are you... fully kitted out. We just we just laid in a whole bunch of new spinnings uh, cool. last week, in fact, in anticipation for the holidays. And Great. We're already having a pretty decent November um, ahead of the curve. Uh, we don't do anything, obviously, sales-wise or otherwise. We just, you know, try to keep things in stock yep. as much as possible. Um, but we'll probably sell out by the first or second week of December, which okay. we have yep. for years. Yep. And then it's really quiet uh, first part of the year. Variably, um, 100% recycled. Yeah. Between 40 and 100% recycled huh. goods. Amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I, awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, Thanks, for sitting down, man. <laughs> it's been fun. Thank you for the intelligent questions, too. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. I'm flattered that I have a small part to play in the history of this copper cookware, a history that's still being written. You can find more online at brooklyncoppercookware.com. Follow along on Instagram at brooklyncopper. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.